Everybody needs to treat each other with like exponential kindness right now. Schedules might have to go out the window. Let's not get too caught up because like collectively we're not at a spot to do what we believe is like our regular sustained work and effort that we wanted to put into our family. So maybe great. We're more likely to order out or have an ice cream dinner. Hey there, I'm Adam Fishman and welcome to the Startup Dad podcast. Each episode, I'll talk to a leader in the startup community about fatherhood. We'll cover the glory and celebrations, the challenges and failures, and the structures and systems they have in place to be both an amazing dad and a successful leader. Nothing is off the table. We'll talk about everything except work. In this first episode, I'm very excited to talk with Adam Grenier, who has been a growth leader at Hotel Tonight, Uber, Lambda School, Masterclass, and more. But most importantly, he's a partner and the father of three kids. We'll cover what it's like raising a child with special needs, how to check in with your partner to manage the challenges of the day, and how he's tried to balance both career and family, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully. I hope you enjoy today's episode. My guest today is a good friend of mine who happens to share my name. It's a fantastic name. He started his career in advertising, then he worked in mobile marketing. He was a growth marketing leader at Uber and led marketing innovation, was VP of growth at Lambda School, VP of marketing at Masterclass, has been an EIR, first round capital, Reforge, and now he is an advisor and investor to the stars. Please welcome Adam Grenier to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me as one of your early guests. Cool. I am excited. We have had a very similar story arc to our careers. Like eerily similar at times. Exactly. Like even working for like opposite competitive companies at various stages. So tell me a little bit more about your non-professional background. So I know that you've got improv and trying to do some voice acting. You're currently constructing a little recording studio in your house. So tell me, how did you get into that stuff? So I grew up in Nebraska and... Went to college originally for electrical engineering and then was sitting in like a calculus class in high school and decided that that would be a really boring way to spend college. (laughs) But at the same time, I was doing a lot of speech, like competitive speech and acting and things like that and loved that stuff. And so I was actually doing an oratory speech on the power of advertising, like the role that it plays in society, and that it's not just this bad thing, but it actually enables everything from, you know, being able to go on the internet without, you know, paying for it every time or little league baseball teams and things like that. And so I just thought about like, oh, this is actually this topic is hitting on a world that kind of crosses the chasm of my interests and skills in like math and data and my joy of like performance and creativity and things like that. And so I decided to go to Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois to join their speech team for two main reasons. One, they were the best speech team in the country at the time. And they are only a couple hours away from Chicago, which to me was, okay, this is the place I can go to increase my odds of being able to move to Chicago and go to Second City to do improv. Because I I kind of like big fan of comedy of, you know, Saturday Night Live and all those types of things for my entire childhood. And so the first time I've got to like see an actual improv show, it was like, oh my gosh, like that just seems like so much more fun than like scripted stuff and like just getting up on stage and everyone was like really loving it. And so, yeah, so I studied advertising and, you know, in that process, learned about media. And I was like, oh, there's a really nerdy part of marketing that I think I can do really well and everybody else is complaining about. And so, yeah, I literally went to college with the expectation of I'm going to go to Bradley so I can move to Chicago so I can be at Second City and Leo Burnett. That was kind of my like go to college to do. And within Uh probably six months of graduating college, I was doing classes and some performance at Second City and I was working at Starcom. Uh, which was like the media side of Leo Burnett. So I'm that one weird person that actually kind of did exactly what I thought I was going to do. Improv is my happy place and like performing and that type of stuff. And so I would have loved to have made a career out of that, but I got a paycheck early in my life and decided to, you know, live a lifestyle that requires keep getting a paycheck. (laughs) Uh, And so I've gone kind of on and off, but it has become the thing that I go back to to ground myself 
on both work and parenthood and life and just having that creative outlet like fulfills so many just like personal prioritization needs, so many creative needs, so many building needs, like creating that type of stuff. And then over COVID, improv on Zoom was just terrible. Like, I don't care what anybody tells you, like 70% of improv is not that great anyways. Like then put it on Zoom and it becomes exponentially worse. And so I had a director who did a lot of stop motion back in the day. And he's like, had been talking to me about doing some voiceover for him. And so I'm like, oh, let me take some voiceover classes. And I just fell in love with it because it was like, oh, I can do this at home, which is way more flexible for a dad of three to be able to actually go do creative stuff by going in the basement instead of Fridays and Saturday nights going into the city, that type of stuff. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, you need skills like public speaking and voice control and and improv. And I'm like, oh, it's the things that I've done. And so, yeah, yeah, so that it's I've not done anything professional on the voice acting side. I've done a lot of training and I've recorded some of my own stuff. And yeah, it's just been kind of an extension of the improv hobby for me is being able to be creative and have fun and be silly and those kinds of things. Oh, that's awesome. Sounds like it scratches a lot of itches for you, which is is very cool. Um, You know, it's funny what you mentioned about improv kind of being crappy on Zoom because I feel like sketch comedy kind of took off with the pandemic and all these sort of solo artists. Mm -hmm. But improv, I guess, requires much more of a two-way connection with the audience and you're getting kind of like feedback. Yeah. Yeah, and I saw a couple that were okay. And even sketch to a degree. I think the whole like doing stuff on Zoom felt great because there wasn't an alternative. (laughs) And now when you go back and look at some of that stuff, you're like, oh, well, that's why we're not doing it anymore because I can go to a live show again. (laughs) Right. And even like I went to some like stand-up shows that were like outside in the sunset and like people are walking through the middle of it. And that was better (laughs) to me than most of the Zoom comedy that I saw. (laughs) It's like, okay, there's something about Uh, that connection, I think, with the audience that's really important. How did your parents feel about you being in Second City, doing improv? Like, were they excited about that when you were growing up? Were they terrified? (laughs) Yeah, they thought it was neat. You know, I grew up in like a very working class family. My dad was in the military and then he did maintenance. And my mom did a variety of different jobs growing up, driving bus, working at the library, working at, you know, local retail, things like that. And just very working class, like relatively poor family. And so even the idea of doing anything that wasn't blue collar kind of path, I think was a little strange to them. And so the good thing is, is like they never blocked it. They were never the, hey, you got to go do X. They were very much like, hey, you should consider college or, you know, oh, you want to move to a bigger city. That's interesting. But like there wasn't any guidance around if that was a good or a bad decision necessarily. Right. Meanwhile, like my brother and sister were very like sporty and followed like very kind of traditional blue collar work paths and have been successful in those. But I think my parents just connect and understand that work much clearer. Whereas I think both improv and growth (laughs) at tech companies, you know, in San Francisco are still kind of foreign to their world. And so I've never felt a sense of, you know, shame or don't go do that or any of that kind of stuff. I think it's more the limit of like really appreciating why it means so much to me. It's funny you mentioned about improv and growth being not something easy to understand. I, I feel like the closest that my dad ever came to understanding what I do for a living was when I worked at Lyft because he could actually like use the product. He's yep, like, oh, oh, yeah, you work at the car company that gives people the rides and, you know. The like five Uber rides that my parents took while right. I worked there all exactly. ended with like text messages or a phone call actually because they don't do much texting of hey we we just got out of the car with Sean he did a really great job and like <laughs> like okay so you let everybody know that Sean's doing a good job in Atlanta yeah. and yeah. <laughs> like I'll do that like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah Sean in Atlanta I know him yeah great I'm right on that <laughs> five stars <laughs> okay so my second question on the improv stuff is Did you have any role models, like anyone that you sort of looked up to for improv, anyone from Second City or from like Saturday Night Live? You mentioned you followed really closely. I know that's not improv, but sometimes they really go off script. So anyone that you kind of like modeled yourself after? I don't have anyone I feel like I've modeled after. I think like Steve Martin's always been partially because like my dad had all of the Steve Martin albums and that type of stuff. I remember, you know, The Jerk and 
My Blue Heaven and like some of his early movies were just like some of the first movies that I remember like watching and just being like, oh my God, this is hilarious. And I think his arc over time is actually really impressive and really interesting because he's obviously he's a musician. He's become a comedian. He was like the best comedian in the world for a while. And he's done so many different things. And one of the things that I think connects me with him is that he is like, he's not crass, but he is not clean, right? He's still like might tell a sex joke or something mildly like offensive, but that's not like his brand. And I think I'm the same way. Like I see myself as like humor being one of the tools that I use to, you know, build relationships and, you know, people know me for that. But I also like, I'm not the guy that's just dropping F-bombs all the time. And like, I've had zero fears or concerns over all of the like, you know, the different cultural changes in industry recently where I'm like, oh, my humor won't play anymore. It's like, no, no, no. It's always been kind of cheesy puns and like more, more fun loving. Dad jokes. You will. Yeah, dad jokes, 100%. I was a big Phil Hartman fan. David Cross, he's more stand-up than he was improv, but like he was probably one of my favorite comedians for quite a while. It's more like a little bit of everybody than it is just like one or two people that I'm like, that is my person. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So I wanted to ask you about how did you get out to California? So you're in Chicago working for... The division of Leo Burnett, doing your second city, then you're in the Bay Area. My wife got um, accepted into a master's program in Australia. She writes about food. and That is not San Francisco, exactly the other direction. At least from Chicago, the other direction. Actually, no, we did fly through San Francisco when we went there. (laughs) So she got a master's degree, and I was like, all right, let's move to Australia. And it was actually really interesting because for me, I'd maybe three years of digital marketing experience. Like I got into a digital team right away, even though digital was a very small piece of the pie, like in 2004. And oh. so moving to Australia, I was just like, well, I'll just find a job. And fortunately, I was able to line up with the same company, but their location there. And it was funny because I was like trying to sell myself as like, oh yeah, I've done a little bit of TV. I've done some radio. I've done some of this other stuff. Trying to just be like, I'm hireable. And then I get there and they're like, you mentioned you did some digital. Well, how much? I'm like, I don't know, like 90% of what I've done. And they're like, oh, okay, great. We've got a role for you. And I became like the digital guy in Australia. Like, like, you have three more years of experience than literally anybody else. Like, you know what tracking is? That's amazing. And so with just a few years of experience was thrown into the spot where I'm like speaking at conferences and I was building a team. And so I actually got, it was much smaller market, but I got some of those like management, like reps under my belt. So it was very fortunate because I'm like, I'll go be a secretary for two years just to live in Australia. Like, that would be really cool. And I got really fortunate to where her move was actually strategically valuable for me as well. So two years in Australia, we moved back to Chicago in May and it snows the next day. And we're like, maybe we don't stay in Chicago. (laughs) So we stayed for a while, but like we just started kind of putting feelers out and getting a sense of like, okay, you like food and culture specifically, not like restaurant reviews. And, you know, me with advertising and some technology and things like that, like it's really like New York or San Francisco were kind of where it was. And it's like, okay, we think the culture and weather of San Francisco will be more appealing. So we just went, let's do it. Let's go. And so, yeah, moved out here in 2008. Cool. It turns out it also snows in New York. So you're probably yes, right. Yep, exactly. So it was like, all right. Yeah. Yep. yep. Bay Area. Tell me more about your wife. You've been together for a long time. It sounds like. How did you meet each other? Yeah, we met at speech camp. Okay. Because <laughs> we're awesome. <laughs> so the school I went to, I got a scholarship for and Bradley hosts a, like a summer high school speech camp. And so as a scholarship freshman, I was invited to come coach the speech camp like the summer before my freshman year. And she was going into her sophomore year. And so we met at camp and just immediately became friends. And after, I don't know, five months, six months, like started kind of dating, hooking up, whatnot. And sometime over non-virtual beers, I'll tell you some more of the story. But (laughs) our story involves like uh, someone throwing up and someone farting at one point, and we were like, "Well, we got those things out of the way in front of each other. This must be <laughs> this must be a match, right? We're still yeah. around. We're still hanging out together, and we could be just disgusting. So that's yep. great because most people don't <laughs> cross those bridges for quite a while. And so, yeah, so we started dating in college, which was like a very like college relationship. Then she graduated college, and then she went and got her associate's degree in culinary arts to refine her background in food. 
up near Chicago. And so once I graduated, I moved to Chicago too. We moved back to Indi- together. And right before we moved to Australia, we decided to get married. And so we got married in 2006. So yeah, we've been quote unquote together for all 21, 22 years. And wow. we've been married for 16 almost in October. Okay. 16 wow. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. My wife and I just hit 20 years of being together. Not that many marriage, 13 years of marriage, I think. So that's still a lot in our community. Like we're the exception to the tech rule of people that have been together that long. We're like the old souls, the old marriage. It's funny. It's yeah, here I'm the old soul. And like back in the Midwest, (laughs) it's like, wait, you didn't have like three kids by the time you were 24. So Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of in the middle of the ends of the spectrum. So speaking of three kids, you have three kids. We do. Last I checked. Tell me about your decision with your wife to start a family. Was it something that you knew you had always wanted? Was it something you'd figured out before you got married? Yeah. So once we got married, like we both knew we wanted to have a family other than like the binary yes or no family. Like I never had a strong opinion like, oh my gosh, I only want one kid or I want 20 kids or anything like that. She had just her and her brother growing up and wanted like four or five kids. She's like, I want a big family. So I think she just turned 30 and saw an episode of Oprah that talked about the risks of having babies after 30. And it was kind of the switch that went from us not really having talked about it much at all to, what do you think? Should we start? Like, we're getting more settled. We're doing better. And it was pretty easy. Like, yeah, I think so. That makes sense. And so we'd kind of had this sense of, well, we've been trying to plan this trip to India with her family. And we're like, well, after that trip, we'll start like really focusing on it. (laughs) And then like, Four weeks later, we were pregnant. <laughs> wow. So we didn't make it past that trip like we'd planned on it. But yeah, so it wasn't like this like big heated debate around, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it just kind of felt we've been together 10 years now and like, you know, getting into our 30s and yeah, just felt appropriate. Time's ticking. Oprah, Oprah says, says it's time. Yeah. So you've got three kids. What are the ages of your kids? Archie, our son is four. And then mm-hmm. the two girls are... Six and 11, about to turn seven. Cool. Somewhat similarly aged to mine, who are nine and seven. What are some of the earliest memories that you have of when your oldest daughter was born? Like maybe something that surprised you or something you felt like, oh, I got this. And then you were like, oh, no, I definitely don't. Good question. My capacity at night is like much higher than my wife's. <laughs> She's not a nighttime person. Like I could wake yeah. up in the middle of the night and get three hours of sleep and mostly function still. Mm-hmm. And so pretty quickly, Impressive. I became the one doing the nighttime routine. And so those just became kind of like cool moments of, yeah, just the two of us, like TV's not on. We're just chilled and hanging out, feeding her or whatever it might be. And so I think those moments are like some of the, I don't know that I would have like thought about those as things coming up or oh, time when it's just her and I to be able to like bond and spend time together being kind of cool and unique that aren't associated with, we went and did X and we have this memory of us at Disney or us at like, you know, going to the beach or whatever. It was just like these moments of, you know, us at night in the apartment, like yeah, chilling. I think those are the most special, right? Do you remember a time where like you were completely overwhelmed when she was really young or felt like, God, I'm getting my ass kicked at this whole <laughs> parenting thing. Well, I mean, you think we all do have these at some point. So yeah, it just all gets blurry this after 11 true. years and three of them. One time we were driving with my wife's father and she was crying and he is like, I'll take her out of the car seat and like calm her down. And I remember that being like a moment of like, Oh my gosh. Like you were driving do not take the kid, like on the highway, like no. And he's got his hearing aid turned down and like, we're just like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> and then now I think about like our third kid and I'd still probably say no, but I would just be like with a very different sense of urgency yeah. and like, oh yeah, we've been in enough of these scenarios now that like, you know, just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe don't take the kid out of the car seat at 70 miles an hour on the on so the it was, maybe it was the grandparents that i was more overwhelmed by than yeah. the kids themselves i'm pretty even keel generally and so it tends to be more the like how much did that exhaust me or not exhaust me afterwards is a better yeah. indicator of like how overwhelmed i was than like how i felt like in the exact moment 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I feel like, yeah, usually in the moment, you're not even thinking about it. You're just reacting to something. And then afterwards, yeah. you're like, whew, can we just process you, what just happened here? You know, do you have uh, a moment? What's your example? Oh, man. Mine has to be like a like a middle of the night diaper blowout or something like that. Like probably first few diapers changing. <laughs> you wake up and you're kind of disoriented and you're changing your kid. And there's just like explosions of baby substances coming everywhere. <laughs> you're barely awake and then your yeah. partner's sleep and you're like, help, you know, like that. Those are some of my earliest memories. <laughs> you can probably take like stories of poop and weave them together to create your own, like, the poop episode of your podcast. For yes. us, it was our middle child at, like, two and a half. But she was still in her crib, but, like, able to stand up and do things and just would get, like, very creative with her poop. And, oh. like, she pooped in the middle of the night and starts crying. We walk in and you smell it before you even, like, get to the room. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, my God, what am I going to see? And just, like, at least twice of, like, on the walls, on oh, herself. On like, hey, look what I created. Those are definitely moments of like, good Lord, do I really have to do oh this right now? Can I just throw her outside? <laughs> Something unnatural is happening in this house. Yes. yes. <laughs> She's possessed. So you mentioned that you've got three kids and you're sort of, you know, very even keeled, quite a bit more mellow with your son. I think this happens. Like the more children, the less you seem to care about about the things. That no, are it's, you're just not as worried. You still care. Right. Right. That's a good, good correction there. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your son because I think you have a really unique perspective on parenting because you have a son with special needs, which not only do you have three kids, but your third kid has special needs, which is in and of itself challenging. And mm -hmm. I'm curious how you manage all of the hard work that goes with having two other kids that you need to care for, mm -hmm. your career. I mean, you and your wife are outnumbered, right? Like, I don't know if there's yep. an animal in the mix somewhere there, too. Yeah, this is why I'm drinking at one o'clock, <laughs> which I don't um, normally yeah. do. I just thought it was fitting for this conversation, sure. but I'm enjoying it nonetheless. Good question. So our youngest, we found out when he was 18 months that okay. he was on the autism spectrum or started showing signs that he was autistic. And so I started, you know, going through the testing and everything like that and got that confirmed. And the timing of it was super weird because, you know, shortly after we got all the diagnosis and everything, we went into lockdown for COVID. Oh, gosh. And so kind of two observations that came from that are unique aspects of that. So one is that we started getting therapy on a regular basis, speech therapy, behavioral therapy, which immediately started having a really great impact. So we've been, you know, very blessed in a lot of different ways in terms of what he's capable of doing and how much he's grown and all of those types of things. But it just became an exponential addition in terms of the calendar, like complexity of everything. But because of COVID, so it was like crappy in the sense that two pretty important years of his life, he really was just socializing with his sisters, no one else. And so like, you know, one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people on the spectrum is the ability to socialize and like understand social cues and things like that. So we're like not getting those reps for him to the degree we wanted to, to not know what that was going to look like. But in a weird way, like because we were contained, like he's just Archie to us. Like there wasn't a sense of like, oh, our child is dealing with something different than other kids because it's just like this is just our third kid and like we're our family and all that kind of stuff. And so it was actually just about seven months ago that he started going to preschool that we started running into situations where it's like, oh, wow, we have to advocate for him in like wildly different ways than we have to advocate right. for our two daughters. And so it kind of allowed us to ease into that transition of what are those unique, uh, unique work that we have to give to him so that he can live as happy and healthy of a life as possible. I think the, you know, project management skills come in really handy. I think you know, Brene Brown is <laughs> is a yeah. big help. Just she's got a lot of really great tools. Like one of the things that we've implemented successfully at times, not successfully at other times, is like she has this concept around understanding that like you as a couple have, let's say, 100% capacity of your ability to help out when you're like fully available for your children or your family and each other. And maybe collectively your household needs 150% between the two of you to be really successful. But rarely are we ever operating at 100%. 
And so like being able to communicate to each other to say like, hey, I'm at 30% today. If you're at 100%, like we're going to be okay. But if you're also at 30%, we need to agree that like everybody needs to treat each other with like exponential kindness right now. Schedules might have to go out the window. Let's not get too caught up because like collectively we're not at a spot to do what we believe is like our regular sustained, you know, work and effort that we wanted to put into our family. So maybe great. We're more likely to order out or have an ice cream dinner, right? (laughs) Like whatever it might be, just be like, screw it. Yeah. So just communication and scheduling and organizing and those kinds of things just become even more important when you've got three kids, when you've got, you know, a child that maybe needs more help and assistance than an average child. But I think you and I both know and have had plenty of other conversations between ourselves and other people that like there is no one normal child and you know give or take our neurotypical children have absolutely their moments where they're more needy and are taking more of our time and capacity than he is and so it's a balancing act constantly Mm -hmm. i 150 percent agree with that even on my worst day i agree with that i wanted to ask a follow-up question about when archie started going to preschool and then you realize maybe seven or eight months ago that it requires like a different level of advocacy from you and your wife as parents for somebody who might be getting started going through this themselves. What's an example of a scenario or a situation where you really had to advocate for Archie and something that he needed? Yeah. So he's in his second preschool now because the first one didn't work out well. And so it's a pretty clean example. <laughs> well, which, by the way, is incredibly normal, right? Yeah. Like, especially for kids. My son went through several preschool transitions. Mm -hmm. Archie's gone through one at least. I mean, it's devastating when it happens, but it's actually for the best, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not too unlike finding the right job, right? You got to find the right fit for what you're looking for, what your needs are, like what's going to fit your commute and schedule and all of those kinds of things. And so our middle child was at a school that we'd planned on having Archie go to, and then it closed down right as she was leaving it. And so that's when he would have started. And so, you know, COVID, we're like, hey, let's just not worry about preschool right now for a little while. We're around, like, we'll just, you know, have him work on things here and not even put in the picture of, like, figuring out vaccines and preschools and everything like that with him. And so we waited a little while. And then when we decided, like, okay, it's time, we realized, like, oh, crap, now we're way behind the eight ball of, like, getting him into preschool because everyone's on wait lists for, like, a year from now and those kinds of things. And so... Part of it was that we ended up taking one of the of kind of our shortened list, the, the one we could get into, like as this first one, which was a bit more of an in-home care. And, you know, we went through a pretty extensive interview process kind of for them to where we actually like walked them through like, hey, here are the tools. Here are his specific like challenges that he has. Here's how we manage them at home, all that type of stuff. And then what we found is that at the end of preschool every day, we would get really, really generic feedback. That was like, he had a hard day today. <laughs> like, well, I don't have a video of it. And so I don't know, like, he, I have 20 different tools that I use to help him with his day. Like, can I teach you one of them? But I, a hard day doesn't help me. Or it'll be like, right. he pushed a kid or something like that. And it's like, okay, can you kind of just share with me, like, what happened before he pushed that kid? Because, right. like, for him, it's... You know, something like a timeout isn't an effective way to help him learn that, like, you don't do that anymore because he just thinks it's part of the game, right? For him, it's more about, like, well, how do we make sure that scenario doesn't happen? Or he knows other things he could do in those scenarios. Because most of the time with that, it's like he just wants to play with someone and is looking for a way to get their attention. And so it's like, well, I don't know if that happened in the middle of lunch. I don't know if it happened in the middle of, you know, playtime or when you're transitioning. Like, not giving me those details isn't helpful for us. And so we would have to just like fight to get really quality feedback, which for our daughters, like a hard day was not that big of a deal to have to figure out because we're like, oh, well, you're probably well equipped to deal with a kid with a hard day, but you're clearly not well equipped to handle my autistic son when he has a hard day, because it seems like you're maybe making it worse. Or like you're not giving him the space or whatever, like you're not utilizing the tools, right? And I just don't know because I'm blind to it all. And so it was just like two months worth of us being like looking and asking for just like, we're giving you everything. You know, I'm printing out 
things that I'm laminating and giving them to you as tools. I'm doing exercises with him at home to be more prepared for these moments. And I'm still just getting really vanilla feedback from you. And that's not a way that I'm going to be able to either help him or more important, I need to help you know how to like right. work with my son. And so now the school that we're at, like it was not only refreshing to find another school that we really liked relatively quickly, but like immediately the teachers at his current school were just like, hey, we tried these three tools today. Two of them worked. One of them didn't. Or, hey, this is happening. Like, here's what we're thinking. Do you have any idea? It was just like, it was a collaboration to help him to like be successful versus what felt like very shame. Like we felt a lot of shame. It was really hard to be just told your son's not doing good or he's having this challenge, but not getting details because then you're just like, Am I failing? Like right. he loves school. He was so excited for school. So then I'm just like, oh my God, is school not going to work? Like, is this mm-hmm. going to be the kind of thing that I, I don't know if a traditional preschool is going to be a successful environment for him yeah. and knowing how excited and happy he was to be there is just like, it's crushing to go through that yeah. kind of stuff. And so like, yeah. those are examples of having to, you know, prioritize like what he really needs to communicate with people, not be shy to state clearly what you need out of them and not be shy to like change if it's not working. Yeah. Like we're at least, you know, if you're living in any kind of decent sized market, you've got choices and opportunities yeah. that you don't have to feel stuck in something that's not working. Yeah. We changed our son's preschool a few different times and it was funny. We'd always been drawn to like kind of the fanciest, you know, cleanest, nicest looking and also most expensive preschools, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out the one that he did the best in was the most no frills, like basic, not super spacious, but he did the best because he just wanted to play outside all day and they were fine with that. And they were like, you do you. And the teachers yep. were super loving and he was great. You know, he didn't have any issues or anything like that. I also wanted to come back to the thing that you mentioned about shame, which is like, when you're getting that sort of generic feedback from the school where they're like, he had a hard day and they're like staring into your soul. You know, (laughs) the implication there is like, he had a hard day. What are you going to do about it? I think someone made a comment on the lines of, we should, we need to fix this soon. Oh, (laughs) we're just like, what the heck does that mean? Are you kicking him out? Like now looking back, it's like gross. You know, he's autistic. It's not something I'm going to fix. This is actually him. So screw you. Let's actually like fix you real soon or like we're out of here because like there are options and yeah. Yeah. Speaking of fixing your preschool, we had that time where we would provide our own feedback and say like, again, these are the things that work. These are the things that don't. And most of the time they wouldn't really listen. The majority of the school system wants kids who are sort of fairly typical, right? And if you deviate from that, that can be challenging for them. And most of them would rather just move on, then mm-hmm. try to work with your kids. Yeah, I think to your point, like this is the kind of thing that I have found a network of people that I can have that kind of conversation with. But like yeah. most people I know wouldn't. Like I've had several people that are like, oh, like you were really open about having to deal with this thing. We're dealing with it too, but haven't talked to anybody else about it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, these are real problems that you're not the first yeah. one to have. And like, be open and honest about it. And like, there's tons of people around us all dealing with similar issues, whether you see it or not. Yeah. Misery loves company. Right. I I remember we went to um, like a new parent support group when our daughter was born. And Mm -hmm. one of the most refreshing things was just hearing that everyone else was struggling with the same issues with their newborn as us. We're like, oh, oh, it's not just us. Good. I'm really sorry that that's happening to you, but also good. Like, oh, your kid <laughs> rolled off the couch too. Good, good, right. good. <laughs> good. And they seem to be okay. Okay, good. Little Great. misshapen head. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation this idea of checking in with your partner and sort of like, where are you at? Where's the fuel tank today? Right, thirty percent, hundred percent. I think that's really fascinating. And I wanted to ask if you have any other sort of like frameworks or guardrails for parenting that you've picked up. Um, yeah. So I think a few things that have become like pretty standard in our world. One is what we call special time, which is basically at the end of Monday through Thursday, each kid gets a dedicated 30 minutes before bedtime 
where they get to do whatever they want to with one of us. And so, like, we split it. So, like, I'll do Monday, Wednesday. She'll do Tuesday, Thursday. But it's just like, great, 630, I'm going to do Archie's special time. And he wants to go on a walk. So we're going to go on a walk. Or he wants to watch a show. Or he wants to play a puzzle or whatever it might be. And so it's just he and I, and we'll do that thing. And then, you know, then he goes to bed. And my middle child, like, will do the same thing. And then our oldest child. And so that has been really great. I think for all of us involved, because the kids love it and they make sure it happens. (laughs) And I think it's helped with various different things in terms of attention and focus and just getting to know them on an individual level. And then for us to each have like our own time with them, that's not just, oh, all five of us are hanging out and those kinds of things. And then we do like a movie night on Fridays and then Saturdays are like, kind of all special time but it's just like that's a good forcing function to like i gotta be home twice a week at the very least in time to do special time obviously the last few years that hasn't been an issue because of covid and working from home and all that kind of stuff but earlier in my career it was just like okay good these are good forcing functions to say like you know i need flexibility to work a startup lifestyle but i'm going to actually still have some consistency and dedication to make sure that like it's not just a total mess the uh, therapy, I mean, we both have our own individual therapists and we have our couple mm-hmm. therapists and our kids all have some version of, you know, therapy and help that they sure. needed at times. And like our very open nature and transparency around mental health has been really great for all of us because like it actually has made us each individually better at saying, hey, I'm at 30% right now, right? To be right. able to like self-identify where I'm at, like hey, I'm like feeling in a funk right now. And it's because I'm just like really in my head about money or about my parents or about like whatever it could, like being able to articulate that is not only helpful in the example we gave before, but it also gives context. So the other person knows like, can I actually help you right now? Do you even want my help right now? Like those kinds of things versus it coming out in the bad ways. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I haven't told you I've been in a bad mood all day. I snapped at you. And had I at least given you context ahead of time, you would have known that probably had nothing to do with you and a simple apology would have been enough. But because I didn't, now you assume that this is between you and I and we need to like really like dive into this kind of thing. And so those are just kind of a few. I love those. I love those. Thanks for sharing them. So I just talked about frameworks for like working together with your partner and communicating and stuff. What's something that you and your wife don't agree on? What's the opposite end of this? Do you have any parenting things that the two of you are sort of like at odds about and you've just come to accept that? There's not much that we like vehemently disagree on. There's definitely things that we just do differently. Like, oh, well, you're giving the child a lot more rope to figure things out. And that inconsistency is not good because they're getting two different types of feedback, right? I think we've been relatively good. We've had ups and downs in terms of like finding opportunities to communicate that to each other to be like, hey, look, like I appreciate that you approach this kind of thing differently, but we should find a middle ground because we're just sending inconsistent messages that aren't helpful to the kids. I'm trying to think of other things. I think like, (laughs) this is silly, but like I think pranks are funny. (laughs) And Lena does no. not. And, I'm so surprised to hear that. And so what's been great is that I committed to my wife quite a while ago in our relationship that I wouldn't like spook her or like, you know, like if I hear her walking around the corner, I won't just wait patiently and because yeah. I know it'll freak her out. But the kids haven't committed that to her. So <laughs> I've worked on teaching them how to like prank their mom. Oh, nice. Very nice. So she gets a little mad at that. But yeah, so there's little things like that that she's just like, could you just not do that with our children? I'm like, I I don't, I can't make that promise because they're all goofballs now and like they love it. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) And it seems like that's a way that you and the kids have bonded too over the ability to be pranksters. Yeah, yep, yep. (laughs) Okay, I wanted to ask you one sort of Serious question, and then get into some rapid fire towards the end here. So, you know, you've worked at Uber, Lambda School, Masterclass. Uber is probably most famous for being hard driving and the hustle culture and sort of like working 12 plus hour days and things like Mm -hmm. that. How did that experience fit? How does that experience or did that experience fit with family life? And what did you do in such an intense environment to kind of find that balance or do what was important for you from a family perspective. 
you know, looking back and assessing situations is oddly enough, Hotel Tonight, which didn't have that same culture, like it was a much more chill culture generally. We fought about like schedules more when I was there than we ever did at Uber. And what I narrow that down to is, again, communication, commitment, and like predictability. So at Hotel Tonight, when I needed to make exceptions to a standard schedule, like they kind of came out of the blue. It would be like, hey, man, this bug happened today. We need to like work through it. I'm going to be here really late tonight. And it's like, oh, well, we already had all this stuff planned and we're going to do stuff or whatever it might be. Or, oh, I need to do a quick trip for, you know, some type of engagement or something like that. But it would be very sporadic. And Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of Uber is that I knew exactly the kind of culture I was walking into. Like, they, you know, it was never shy about what kind of culture Uber was. And it was part of what appealed to me in the sense of, like, literally walking into the door to the office was, like, night and day compared to walking out of the door of Hotel Tonight. When I was just like, the energy here is just so clearly focused and hard worked and yeah. that type of stuff and like talk to people and they're like, yeah, we're working super late and all that kind of stuff. And so knowing that, like that was part of our conversation, me taking the job was, hey, I'm about to go somewhere that the commitment level is different. And I think we should plan for that. And so we made a few decisions and they shifted at times throughout the four years that I was at Uber. But like a couple of them were, hey, you hate mornings. I have to get up anyways. Why don't I just do all morning routine stuff, right? Like I'll get the girls up or at the time it was just Ella, but then we had our second child there. And like, you know, I'll do all kids stuff in the morning. I'll get up with her. I'll get her ready for school. I think took her to school. That way you like, you just sleep in, you do whatever you need to in the mornings and you'll do after school stuff, right? So you're going to, you do pickup, you know, getting dinner ready, that kind of stuff. And so we felt that was like a pretty clean 50-50 split in terms of, hey, I'm not leaving you, but I can't commit to evenings nearly as confidently as I can every single morning because that's never going to be a problem. And then it was, hey, let's commit to two nights a week we're doing dinner as a family, right? So similar, it was just like Wednesday nights and Monday nights. And if and when there's ever going to be exceptions, we know we need to really communicate and treat that preciously. So if it's like, if it is a last minute bug on a Wednesday, then it's like, great, I'm going to find a way to make Thursday free and make up for that okay. or whatever. So it just, we just like made the ground rules. Every Friday, the growth team had a morning meeting with Travis. And so it meant okay. like every Thursday night, the growth leads literally just stayed in the office until we solved any problem that we found. Because it's like, if you just take a problem to that meeting, it wasn't a healthy meeting. Like you needed to take the solution and proof that you're working on it. So we were usually in the office till like, one or two in the morning on Thursday nights. But that became predictable. So it was literally never an issue because it was just like, I'm not going to be home on Thursdays. Please do not count on me. Neither are any of my peers and any of those types of things. At work, the opposite was true, which is I made it very clear that I'm like, look, I have a family and it's an important part of my life. And so I'm going to be home on Monday and Wednesday nights for dinner. I'm going to be the one that leaves at five o'clock. I know we serve dinner at 8.30, (laughs) <laughs> right. And so everyone else is staying until nine or 10, but I right. will be the one I'm going to leave consistently and just do that. Yeah. And I'm sure I had an, you know, some privilege and advantage there already, you know, being a little further in my career, being a bit more senior at the office. But I had several people tell me that like that example helped them be able to do the same thing, right? Is be able to say like, okay, well, at least one of our leaders is just like consistently doing what he says he's going to do. I think the Netflix work culture book like talks about that. It's one thing to put like a policy or like flexibility in your culture statements. It's another thing when the leadership team actually goes and does it, when they actually go take a two week vacation and disconnect, when they actually go home and have dinner every night with their kids. Like that's the type of thing that I don't know if it's just because I'm like bullish and I'm like, that's just what I'm going to (laughs) do. But I did it and I've been able to maintain it. Like, so I was like, great. That's just been my like, you know, curve the whole time. But then I also worked at like Lambda School, which is the opposite end of the spectrum of incredibly hardworking. Like I would match it pretty close to like how hardworking people were at Uber, but like a big chunk of the founding team was Mormon. And so like very deep family roots. So there it was just like, I was getting people being like, hey, I know there's stuff going on with your son or your dad or whatever. Like if you need to take three days off, you should do it. And I was like, yeah. Or like when I was dealing with, my dad was really sick and I was dealing with that once and like, I got left out of a conversation on the weekend and I was like, 
is this because I'm not part of the team? They're like, no, 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 no. We all left you out because you're dealing with family stuff. And I was like, oh, that that was really thoughtful. I know. I just assume if I was left out of something, there must be politics involved. But it's like, no, no, no. You actually like all of you care about this kind of thing. And so neither of those are things I've seen exactly anywhere else. But I think I've been to places now that have kind of polarizing perspectives on like what being a family person at that company means and looks like because at uber it was mostly 23 year olds and like i think five of us when i started that even had kids and so it was like very much the exception to have a family when i was at uber oh wow that's really good advice too for new parents aspiring parents things like that if you've got a few minutes left i want to do rapid fire i'm going to throw a question at you and I want you to tell me one of the first things that comes to mind when I, when I ask right, this question. I'll do my so. best to edit. My okay, here we go. <laughs> Rapid fire. Um, most indispensable parenting product you've ever purchased? Uh, butt cream. <laughs> most useless parenting product you've ever purchased? A hiking backpack. <laughs> oh, same. <laughs> yes. Have you ever dropped one of your kids as a baby? The couch thing was real. Like, the, I didn't drop her, but she was sat on the couch and she just, like, rolled off the couch for sure. She went from the potted plant to, like, tilted yeah. over, whatever. I, I've done more, okay. like, putting my kid on my shoulders and hitting their head on something than oh, yeah. I've done dropping. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How many parenting books do you have in your house? Zero. Zero parenting books. Wow. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, we got some with Ella, but then like, since then we've moved and done other things where I've been able to purge a lot of books. It's like, and a lot of them are things like that, where I'm like, yeah, I maybe read like a chapter out of it, but the internet's way more effective than a book. I guess the exception maybe being that like, we do have some books about like raising a child that's autistic. I don't know that they're necessarily specific to child, but just like around autism. So maybe a couple, but very, very few. What is your favorite book to read to your kids? There's like an emotion Sesame Street one. So I do voices. And so the more characters, the more fun it is. Sometime I'll have you back and we will record you reading me the emotion Sesame Street book. I cannot wait. Perfect. What's been sort of the favorite age of yours when your kids were at that age? I actually like really dig the age that my oldest is at right now. Like we're binging Stranger Things together. And oh, nice. like she wants to go to like the Crunchyroll like Comic Con type conferences, and she loves playing video games and those kinds of things. So I think I relate more to like teens or preteens. And she's super in animation, and so I'm just like, great, like let's get you exposure to that. Like this is like where I can start planting real career yeah. pathing ideas. And so I, I don't know, I geek out more about that stuff than the little kid stuff. Cool. What was your like least favorite age of kids? What's the hardest age? For kids. I think that like 18 months-ish or 12 months-ish where like the specific example is when you can still lap a child in the airplane, but they don't want to be a lap child anymore in an airplane. It's like the worst travel period of time because it's like they just want to walk because they just learned how to walk, but they don't have words yet to like really explain themselves or anything like that. So it's just this like constant eagerness to go do stuff and inability yeah. to actually like communicate at all. And so I think oh, that's like a really hard, unique point in time is that kind of six to 12 I, months be- between walking and talking well. Could not agree more with that statement. That's a great one. Screen time, good, bad, indifferent. What's your take? I'm pretty indifferent. Like it's very different for all three of them, what it does to them. And we're very flexible. Two things that I actually have opinions about are that like, I do think that to me being like technically literate is really important because I think that that is going to be a natural place where they're going to run into challenges, whether that's researching a paper in school or bullying or things like that. So I'd rather them be literate with technology rather than like they just never got exposure to it. And then, you know, we found with our middle daughter who's got like ADHD and our son, like there are actually times where like screen time is exactly what they need to be able to cool down and calm down and our therapists and doctors have guided us down that path. And I think you just get such a binary like reaction to screen time sometimes that there are places and times where for certain children and personalities, it is what they need. And so indifferent in the sense that I think it's a super flexible answer. Okay, cool. 
One in a follow-up. Does your 11-year-old have a cell phone? Yes. What age is appropriate for a kid to have a cell phone? So I am a tech enthusiast, and I upgrade every year. And so she just got an old iPhone of mine. And initially, it was only Wi-Fi. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like I got her a number through like one of the Wi-Fi services. Mm-hmm. But like it was like me and her mom would call her while she was home or vice versa. Yeah. Like she wasn't taking it to school or anything like that. Her 11th birthday is when we got her cell service. And now she's allowed to like take it with her places and stuff like that. Okay. Cool. Final question. Minivans. What's your take on minivans? Oh, my God. I'm so torn. I drive a Traverse, which okay. is in many ways a minivan, just without the yep. sliding doors. But every time I drive a minivan, like every time I'm like shopping or thinking about getting a new vehicle, I'll explore it. So I'm like, logically, I get it. Like I can better gas mileage. It's a little easier, things like that. But like, it just feels like driving a car to me. And the Traverse feels like driving a truck. And maybe that's the Nebraska in me. But I like the size of the Traverse. I'm I'm in waiting for a Rivian, the R1S. I've been waiting for two Ooh. years. But every time I get the, it's been delayed another six months. I'm like, maybe I just buy a hybrid minivan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> By the time I'm actually ready to get it, the company will probably be out of business. Uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, but right, no, well, I'm not. I'm not against them. I'm not against them. I just for some reason haven't pulled the trigger. I'm I'm pretty happy with my SUVs. But three awesome. rows for sure. If you have three children. Because the space between them matters. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today and answering questions and and your vulnerability and just opening up to life as a dad. Any parting pieces of advice? Yeah, just have fun. Always look on the bright side of life. Monty Python song is my like theme song to life, which is like, yeah, things are actually really shitty sometimes. But like, if you can smile and like, you know, have a good sense of humor about it, that's, I think, incredibly helpful for you, for your relationship with your significant other, and just a really great skill to teach children as a good sense of humor. And so that's my encouragement to everybody is like, find the fun and enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode just as much as I did making it. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from the great Tommy Heron. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll subscribe to receive future episodes and leave me a review to let others know what you liked about the show, what you didn't. You can also stay up to date on my thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fish. M-A-N-A-F newsletter.com. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.